Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, welcome everyone. This is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1, and this is the Apex Hour. We have been having such a great week here. Um, my guest today is Florence Williams, and we have been outside all week. We have been talking about her book, The Nature Fix, which we're going to talk about more today, and we've just been celebrating her visit on campus. Uh, she is visiting uh, campus as our Eccles visiting scholar, um, part of our wonderful Eccles Visiting Scholar program here at Southern Utah University and also as an Apex speaker. So welcome, Florence Williams. Thank you so much, Lynn. It's great to be here. What a pleasure to have you. Um, I'm, I have so many things to talk to you about. We've been enjoying being outside. We've had so many classes reading your book and asking you questions about specific chapters and all of those kinds of things. But before we get into the details, I'd love to start by just talking about how you came to do what you do. I know you transitioned. Um, you've, you've done a lot in journalism and you, you've done a lot of different kinds of writing. Sort of tell us how you came from there to here. Yes, sure. I'd be happy to. I, I really started out as an environmental journalist. Ah. Um, my first job out of college was working for a wonderful magazine called High Country News based in Western Colorado. Um, I was really interested in environmental issues and I was interested in land resource issues, interested in the Rocky Mountain West. We covered 10 states. And so, oh, wow. Yeah. So I really, I, you know, it's just a great sort of training ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I was writing a lot of stories about things like the Clean Air Act, you know, and, and congressional races. And, and at some point, I guess it was around the start, the time I became a mother, actually, I realized that I was really more interested in the people piece mm-hmm. of the environmental sort of equation. I wanted to know how pollution and how we were treating the planet was sort of affecting human health. Yeah. And so I started writing more about, um, you know, environmental health, really. Uh, and, and from that, uh, it, 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 I had to learn a lot of science. You yeah. know, I had to learn sort of what, what it meant when industrial molecules entered our bloodstream. Um, I had to learn about the human endocrine system. Um, it was really a, a, an amazing education. I had never been that interested in yeah. sort of straight science and biology before. And suddenly I was completely fascinated by it wanted to write about it, wanted to tell these stories. It came from uh, sort of also the personal time of having children. And that's sort of what led to some of the studies, I think, that led you to your first book, right? Yes, my first book was really a look at um, women's reproductive health, specifically breast health, Mm -hmm. um, how industrial chemicals um, were getting into human breast milk. Um, I actually sent my breast milk off to a lab in Germany, and it came back positive for jet fuel ingredients, for pesticides, and for flame retardants. 
Um, I mean, when you opened that, were you just frightened? Well, by the time I had sent it off, I knew to expect it because it's actually in everyone's bloodstreams. (laughs) And how does that happen? Um, It happens because we live in a world with a lot of permeable chemicals. Every time, you know, we sit on a couch, the molecules in our couch, you know, waft into the air. We ingest them. We touch them. We breathe them in. Um, There are chemicals in our food. There are chemicals in our water. You know, most of these exist at really, really low levels, and it's not a huge cause for alarm. But when you're talking about a fetus and an infant um, and a developing neuroendocrine system, um, suddenly these questions become really, really relevant, really important, and and we have to start asking them. Yeah. And then your first book, remind me the date that 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 came out. That came out in 2012. Okay. And then you move into nature and the background, a little bit about the nature fix has a little bit to do with where you were living. Is that right? Exactly. I was so fortunate to spend two decades living in the Rocky Mountains. I lived in Montana for 10 years. I lived in Colorado for 12 years. Uh, and then um, my, my then husband got a job in yeah. Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, it was a big decision to move. Uh, and I, I, I even I didn't even realize how much I would miss those mountains and the nature and how much it would affect my sense of well-being, my sense of emotional, you know, happiness, um, my sense of anxiety. All of these things really shifted when I moved into the heart of a big city. Did it hit you right away or yes. was it a slow burn? <laughs> oh, it was right away. <laughs> it hit me right away. It was, you know, it's such a shock moving from, you know, the Rocky Mountains to yeah. Washington, D.C. Um, it was 104 degrees when we landed. Oh, my gosh. Incredibly humid. Um <laughs> you know, and 104 degrees on the East Coast is pretty different from yes. 104 degrees here. It's not the dry heat. We have here. <laughs> no, it's not the dry heat. Um, you know, I, I felt like it, it was a moonscape because there were no children playing outside. Oh, so where is everyone? Um, you know, people just have a very different relationship to the natural world there. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really gray and you know, very uh, lots of asphalt, lots of straight lines, straight geometry, incredible yeah. amount of noise pollution. And these things immediately affected me. Yeah. And so then was, was it obvious to you right away that you wanted to explore that in writing? Or how did, how did it turn into the book and research? Well, at first, it was just purely personal. I just thought, oh, my God, I really miss the mountains. I really miss the trees. I miss the birds. I miss nature. Help. Uh, and then I was really fortunate just to get an assignment from Outside Magazine, where I'm a contributing editor. Oh, yeah. um, and they wanted me to really explore the science behind why being in nature makes us feel so good. Oh. Um, and so um, I had to really you know, do a lot of research to find out where to go, uh-huh. you know, which places around the world were doing this kind of research and what would make an interesting story. And I, I settled on Japan, yeah. um, where there's a lot of research looking into the human you know, physiological system, our central nervous systems, and how that's how that's affected by living in a city versus being in a forest. Mm-hmm. And I, I might as well just ask you now, because I wanted to ask you later when we get into the book, and this beautiful term that that is in your book, and that is a Japanese term originally, forest bathing. So you sort of found, had you known about it before? Or no, was I it- had never heard of forest bathing. The Japanese term is Shinrin-yoku. Um, and, and some people think it must be this very ancient, you know, Japanese practice, but it's not. It was actually something that was um, promoted by the government in the 1980s. 
Oh, that recent? That recent. And it was really a response to the incredible stress of life in Tokyo. Yeah. You know, where, where people work the longest office hours on the planet, very high rates of suicide. And so the government was really desperate to figure out ways um, to help people, you know, relieve stress and oh, calm down. I had no idea that it was such a recent uh, I know. Sort of discovery. Yeah. And they just put a, a ton of research and um, and data. They've been collecting a lot. And can you describe for our audience, I know um, you do a great job of talking about it in the book. And um, I know so many people are, are so interested in the book based on your visit. And again, the book is The Nature Fix. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about forest bathing and and you had some very intimate experiences with it well sure yes i had to try it out um <laughs> does not involve taking off your bathrobe <laughs> um it's it's really a way of engaging all five senses yeah. and um the japanese have figured out that that if you can get into a zone where you're very mindful of the place where you are in the forest and you can sort of focus and it does take focus it takes um deliberation mm. focus on listening to the birds you know feeling the breeze on your skin maybe feeling the moss in your fingers it's very tactile even drinking tea made from the bark looking at certain patterns you know in the trees and in in the creek um if you do that even for 15 minutes so not a very long time um your nervous system responds in a way that is very stress relieving. Yeah. So your blood pressure goes down, your heart rate slows, your respiration increases, you know, you breathe more slowly, everything smells so fantastic. Those cypress forests are amazing. Um, and cortisol, which is a stress hormone, um, really reduces, gets lowered after just 15 minutes of yeah. forest bathing. I'd love to zero in a little more on that, that the concept of the, the alertness or the awareness, because I think some people maybe tend to think, oh, well, I'm just going to go outside. And of course, that's great. But but this forest bathing concept is, is, is an alert awareness, really intentional. I mean, that seems like a key component. It's really a key component. And, and I have to tell you, Lynn, it, it really taught me to look at being in nature in a different way. Uh huh. Because I used to mostly go out for exercise. You know, I would go hoof up the mountain, and I thought sort of the point was to get exercise. And, and of course, I did. And that's very, very good for us. Um, but the Japanese made me realize it's it's actually very mental. Yeah. Um, and it's about being present. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Buddhists talk about this all the time. They talk about mindfulness. But nature, it turns out, is really a great teacher yeah. for being mindful. Yeah. But, you know, you have to take the earbuds out. Yeah. And you have to sort of stop that internal, um, you know, um, sound script in your head that's you know, reminding you what's for dinner and, you know, what am I going to do when I'm done with this hike? And um, you have to sort of turn off that internal voice to the extent possible. And it really helps to cue into the landscape. Yeah. Like I say to myself now, oh, I wonder what birds are out here. Um, or I'd love to hear the sound of that that little brat babbling brook. I wonder mm -hmm. what it sounds like today. Yeah. Uh, and, and I find that doing that really is a shortcut to stress reduction. I love that. And you also, I know from our just our couple of times out together, you like to really feel things between your fingers too. You you often will grab a hold of something and sort of feel it for that tactile part too. I really do. And I also, I go crazy for the wonderful aromas of mm. being uh, in the woods. So you've taken me on some great hikes, Lynn. And, you know, I, I do, I grab especially evergreen needles. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll peel a few off and I'll, um, you know, crunch them in my fingers. 
and I'll, I'll smell them and I'll even hike with them for a while and I'll keep smelling them because those pine scents are so invigorating. Yeah. Um, the, the nose is this direct pathway to the brain and it can change our mood and our behaviors really, really quickly. And, you know, if you think about it, when you sometimes you go into a retail store um, and, and retailers have figured this out, you know, they are misting the smells of citrus or cinnamon or whatever. And it's because psychologists have proven that that will make you a little more relaxed. It will help you spend more money. Yeah. And when you're in the woods, when you smell those things, you actually instantly feel more alive. You feel more connected to the landscape you're in. Um, and it, it really increases your mood. And I know people, you've been asked this before, but can you also bring those things indoors to help? Can you use an aromatherapy? I mean, it's not a, it's not a substitute and I'm not suggesting that at all, but I know I love when my house smells good. (laughs) You know, is that also something that, that you would suggest? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, if you go to a place like South Korea, um, they almost fetishize some of these wood products. Uh-huh. So you can buy toothpaste that smells like pine trees. No way. Which is kind of bizarre, mm-hmm. you know, not something we're used to. Um, you know, you can buy wonderful shampoos that smell like the forest. I think aromatherapy, um, you know, I think there's something to it. I, I know I like to put lavender drops in my bath. Yeah. Um, and, and we know it, it really can shift your mood. It's quite yeah. interesting. That's awesome. Well, it's already time for our first musical break. Um, so let's see. I have a couple of things to play. I'm going to play a song called Good Day Bad. And that's um, Michelle and Dengian Cello, a great artist um, who's done so much. And this is a newer, one of her sort of newer songs. And when we come back, we'll get more into the nature fix with Florence Williams. You're listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. There were deserts on the seafloor, mountains higher than any peak you'll ever see up upon dry land as I fall.
Okay, well, welcome back. So I have to make my correction first. This is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to the Apex Hour. That song was not Good Day Bad by Michelle and Diggy and Cello. I made a mistake. It happens. Um, the song that you just heard was also on my list to play today. And that song is called Give My Body Back. And the group is called The Low Anthem. Also a nice kind of groove today. Um, so welcome back to the studio, Florence Williams. Thanks so much, Lynn. Well, let's get more into the book. So so we, uh, the Nature Fix, is, um, your book, talks a lot about how important it is to get out there. And I know one of the first questions out of everybody's mouth is, well, how much time do we actually need? And I know that there's a lot of different varying reports. I mean, even earlier just now, you mentioned that even just 15 minutes outside can make a difference. So I wonder if you could walk us through um, the different lengths and the, and the data behind it and the recommendations. Sure, absolutely. And I, I structured my book by dose um, because people are always really interested in this and it seems like kind of useful information, um, a kind of helpful way to structure some of the science. You know, the reality is most of us do live in cities. Yes. Um, and so how much do we need and how hard should we try to get it? And so, right, according to the Japanese research and some of the South Korean research and some other places, um, even having very short 15 to 30 minute exposures can improve our moods, um, can, can lower our, our blood pressure, um, be really helpful. And in fact, if you can't even do that, there are still benefits. Um, for example, to, um, having a view of trees and grass or beauty outside your window. So, you know, if you have a desk, you know, by all means, think about putting it where there's a view. You can look up and get a micro break. Give your brain, give your thinking brain a, a, a sort of tiny break. And, and actually, the science shows that you'll be a little bit sharper when you go back to your task after just looking out the window. I love the micro break concept. And micro I, breaks. You know, yeah. we talk about, uh, I, I'm, many people know I'm a musician. And so when I'm coaching students for practicing, you know, we, we say, oh, the typical music student can practice four or six hours a day, but you can't stay inside at no. one instrument four or six hours a day. You may need to take five minutes um, every 45 minutes or so and have a micro break and all the better if it's outside. Yes. I mean, there are a lot of people who are looking at sort of maximizing brain training, brain efficiency. Uh, you know, we, there are computer games we can play that are supposed to make us better mm -hmm. at multitasking. And even some of those neuroscientists are looking looking to nature as a way to give us a maximal break so that when we go back after five minutes, we're sharper. The test scores improve. We see this in a lot of the data too. That's right. Some of the, some of the window studies, again, show that hospital patients ask for less pain medication if they have a view of a wind of a tree as opposed to a view of a brick building. Yeah. Um, in, um, with students, test scores go up if they're also surrounded by some some green lawn or some green play areas. Um, uh, and, you know, even even just um, sitting on a bench yeah. and having your lunch there, yeah. um, getting some natural daylight for a few minutes can really do wonders, not just for your sort of mood, but but even for your circadian rhythms, which can help you sleep better, um, help your health overall. And then, of course, you know, the more nature you get, the better. It seems like there's a dose curve. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you actually go for a, a walk or have a longer sit in nature, you're going to have more restoration. And I love this. The Finnish researchers um, oh, have a yes. very specific recommendation. Yeah. Um, and they think that you can actually prevent depression by going and getting a minimum dose of five hours a month. 
This is amazing. So that translates to about two visits into nature, you know, uh, a week for yeah. 30 to 40 minutes each time, which seems, you know, pretty doable. It seems reasonable. And I mean, we talk at the university level so much about uh, anxiety and depression. And, um, and here we have a, a literal prescription, if you will. The Finnish study is very interesting because, I mean, the, the Finns tend to be models for so many things for us. And, um, and, and you studied what kind of what, how they came to this and, and their schooling and things like that too. And so they came up with this and they, they implemented on a national level. Is that? Well, it's a recommendation. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like everywhere, um, the Finnish are grappling with more kind of diseases of the indoors, if you will. So things like obesity and diabetes and depression and suicide. Uh, and so researchers there are very eager to figure out um, how to help people relieve stress, how to help them be healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like, uh, you know, they'll say if you can get 10 hours a month, that's even better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but if you can only get five hours a month, go for it. And and I don't know if that's going to really translate across cultures. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, because I mean, the, the, the Finns, and I think you mentioned this uh, either in your talk today or in the book, uh, they've always had quite a strong connection to nature. And so I wonder how that would play out here. Right, right. I think certainly a lot of Americans were now facing two generations of people who are pretty disconnected from nature. You know, they've lived in cities for many generations. Um, They themselves did not necessarily go camping or hiking when they were kids. Um, And so maybe they need a little more time (laughs) or they need a more gradual introduction. But there's hope, right? Some people here can even, you you can get certified in forest bathing guiding. Is that right? There is a a national certification now in the U.S. You can get um, certified to be a forest bathing guide. I actually, I recently met a doctor um, who has herself gotten certified. She completely believes that this is necessary for for our health and the health of her patients. There are now a thousand doctors in the United States who are actually prescribing time in parks. Oh, that's so cool. To their patients. It's really interesting. That's amazing. I mean, what a perfect that's like way better than taking prescription drugs i think right and and the and the side effects are positive yeah. you know the side effects are well you might you might actually increase your aerobic fit, fitness you might get a little of extra vitamin d um you yeah, know those are definitely the things i want to see on the side of a bottle you know like <laughs> may increase aerobic fitness may feel may make you feel better may cause unexpected euphoria yeah I love that. (laughs) And so I think uh, one of the really amazing parts of your discussion today was the nature pyramid. And so it seems like all these different doses sort of come into this uh, pyramid structure of uh, ways to interact. And can you talk a little bit about how that is constructed? Yeah, I ran into the idea of the nature pyramid um, from a, a researcher at the University of Virginia, Tim Beatley. And Uh, He's really popularized it. You know, it's kind of based on this idea of a food pyramid, which is like, what should our allotment of nature be? What's the the sort of right allocation? And, you know, our bread and butter is really going to be where we all spend the most time and where we live. And that's going to be cities or towns, large towns. So it's really that nearby nature, which is why it's so important that we have high quality parks, that we have green schoolyards. Um, that we allow our kids to have recess, uh, we need to kind of maximize that that dose 
um, and to make it really work for us and to make us healthy. But the middle of the pyramid would be more like intentional visits to regional or state parks, maybe longer picnics or outings, um, you know, places where we can um, really experience a deeper sense of relaxation, a deeper kind of social bonding if we go with our families or with our friends, um, a little bit more time away from our technology, which has been proven to be really good for us in many ways. And then at the tippy top of the pyramid are these kind of very rare, but still critically important and delicious doses of wilderness and wild places. Yeah. So you kind of work from uh, the day-to-day to the to the very special. And, and I know you spend some time talking about awe. And, and the awe ones would be maybe those, those ones really at the tip of the pyramid, those really special uh, opportunities. Well, I don't want to suggest that you can only find awe yeah. you know, in the wilderness. And in fact, um, one thing I've been really delighted to learn is that we can call cultivate a sense of awe. And researchers believe that if we um, readily access states of awe, it's really, really good for our um, interpersonal skills. It's um, good for making us feel more connected, not only to the larger world around us, but to each other. Um, We behave in more generous, giving ways if we experience awe. 50% of the time that people experience awe, it's actually from the natural world. And we can experience it in a city if we know how to look for it. So, you know, a sunset, for example, a full moon, a butterfly or a beautiful bird um, unexpectedly flying in front of our path. Mm -hmm. Um, These are things that draw us out of kind of the inner drama of our own heads um, and, and make us feel like we're part of a larger, beautiful world. Well, that's great because it doesn't, we don't have to feel that, um, it's, it really, it is something that anybody can get at any time if they look for it. And I think that's a, a beautiful sort of sentiment, a beautiful concept to, to really go for. We don't have to, you know, drive five hours to go camping. Right. You can cultivate a sense of awe. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I love that too. It's really kind of opening our eyes. Sometimes um, taking the earbuds out, <laughs> yeah, um, and and making again that deliberate effort to to tune in, yeah, you know, to the beautiful things around us, yeah. Well, the healing part of it you mentioned just a few minutes ago, and and the hospital rooms and um and and some of the studies, and and you've experienced that also even with your father's recuperation and and how the outdoors helped, um, but. I know Florence Nightingale. It's just such a beautiful thing that, you know, the name carried over. But and, better than Hurricane Florence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the studies kind of began with her in a way, right? Uh, well, she intuitively understood that patients need clean air and bright natural light in order to heal. Mm-hmm. And she would watch as very ill patients would turn their heads to the window so that they could feel the sunlight. Um, So she just intuitively got it, you know, that that the natural world was important to sort of our sense of of well-being. Um, and then we forgot it for a hundred and a hundred years. Yeah. You know, we, we put patients in big climate controlled hospital rooms and shut the windows. Do you, why do you think that was? Is it just the, the industrialization of everything or do you think it's a cultural? I mean, why well, did we do that? I think it's a very efficient way to deliver care. Oh, if you I can see. stack a lot of patients in one building. Um, and of course, you know, we started to believe in the germ theory model of medicine, which was that you're sick because you ingested a germ uh. or you got infected by a germ. And, and I think now we're starting to come back to this more holistic view of health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it also, we need to optimize our health and we need to maximize our well-being. 
it's not just preventing germs, um, but it's really um, nurturing our senses, nurturing our brains, um, and and feeling alive. Ah, that's great. Well, it's time for another bit of music. And now I'm really going to play the Michelle and Degging cello. And then maybe when we come back, I'd love to get into, um, you know, how we can help our children and uh, as we move forward and, and getting children outside and talking a little bit about recess and those kinds of things. But in the meantime, let's finally hear Good Day Bad um, by Michelle and Degging cello, KSUU. Thunder 91.1. Thank you. 
Okay, welcome back, everyone, to the Apex Hour. That was Good Day, Bad by Michelle and Diggy and Cello. Um, I love the end of that song, just that like whistling that kind of trails off in the distance. Uh, we are here in the studio with Florence William, and we're talking mostly about her book, The Nature Fix. But let me take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about some of the other things that she does. She's a journalist, best-selling author, podcaster, and I definitely wanted to ask you a little bit more about the new podcast, The Three Day Effect which is available on Audible. Um, contributing editor to Outside Magazine. She is written for the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, the New York Review of Books, Slate, Mother Jones, and numerous other publications. And in, in addition to talking at Southern Utah University today, she's given talks at Google, the Smithsonian, the Seattle Zoo, the Aspen Ideas Festival, and many, many others. So welcome back, Florence. Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe this is a good time to talk about your one of your newer projects, um, the three day effect. And it, I am just think this is such a cool thing that you're doing because it's part it is a podcast, but also kind of an audio documentary and book and and <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. Sure, I, I would definitely describe it as an audio documentary. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's it's it is based on the book, but it's completely new information and totally newly reported. Right. So we did six episodes, and we really focused uh, I focused it around the three day effect, mm -hmm. which is this idea that transformational things can happen to us after three days in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. So um, for the podcast, we found. Um, different groups of people who were very much in need of healing outside. Um, and then we also uh, connected with researchers who were studying those populations outside. Um, so we have two episodes on a group of veterans uh, running Lador Canyon of the Green River. And while they were out there, they were wearing brainwave measuring devices. Uh, they were also per performing some cognitive tests. I ran all these things on myself as well, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Uh, and so there was actually science going on. It wasn't just, you know, let's see how much people start singing Kumbaya and holding hands. <laughs> Um, and then, and, and then, for, uh, I also went out with a group of sex trafficking survivors, oh. um, which is really fascinating, really powerful. These are women who'd been already uh, in therapy for a year, uh, really had had many, many years of, of trauma to to work on. Um, they found some some tr really powerful and transformative moments outside, mm -hmm. um, and I get into sort of the theory of wilderness therapy. Um, and how feminists are actually kind of changing and challenging the traditional role of, you know, kind of conquering wilderness to conquer your fears. Yeah. Um, and, and these women really kind of brought home the lesson for me that it's, it's not necessarily about conquering or about challenge or about hardship, but actually about finding a place of safety. 
So it was kind of this fascinating reversal of the way I think we often think about outdoor therapy and outdoor adventure. Um, And then for sort of some comic relief, we also take a writer from Washington, D.C. out who hates nature. (laughs) And he has writer's block and a lot of sort of creative, you know, blockages going on. And and we measure him up with some blood pressure machines, um, some other stress, stress measuring machines. Uh, and it turns out that, it, that he really improved out there after three days, even though he complained about it the whole time. <laughs> and he went home and he wrote three chapters of his book. So no way. There you go. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. So you can hear all of those stories um, on, on the three day effect, which is available on audible.com. And you did these tests on yourself as well. And, and did. did you find any shocking results or anything that surprised you? Um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, I I think it was kind of expected that I also felt better, yeah. <laughs> you know, after being outside. My, my blood pressure also went down after three days outside. Um, I also sometimes felt more creative. And, and I was also in my own life, um, just dealing with some personal issues. Yeah. Um, I have a recent divorce mm-hmm. that I'm kind of tackling. And, and so I felt like I needed the time outside too. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that's really cool. And I'm, I'm so excited to dig into that and learn more about it. And that's just been out for, you said a couple months? Uh, just a few weeks, actually. Oh, a few and weeks. Yeah, it's available through the Audible app, or mm-hmm. you can find it um, through uh, Amazon, which is related to Audible. And your website, too. I think there, yeah, there the, are links on the, my the website. You can link as well. to it from and there. I'm also on social media, which has some links. Great. Um, too. Okay, cool. Well, one of the things I know you're really passionate about now and, and, and have always been, but I know you're, you're sort of involved in some research now has to do with, with, with children and the importance of getting our kids out there and sharing it with the next generation and, and sort of helping them. It really is going to help them adapt to this world. So can you talk a little bit about um, some of your current experiences or some of those things that relate specifically to getting children outside? Well, I'm so passionate about getting children outside. And and the thing about children is they want to be outside. You know, young children have a natural affinity for beautiful things and for interesting things. And, you know, I'm I'm sure we've all seen children just be able to kind of watch the caterpillar crawl by with incredible wonder in their eyes. If we could only all regain that sense of wonder. And yet we create these lives for them where they're in cars and they're in strapped into car seats and they're strapped into classrooms. We make them sit at a table in kindergarten and give them a crayon and tell them what to do. There's just not enough free play um, or adventure that, for example, the man who invented kindergarten, Frederick Froebel, in 1837, he he fully understood that young children should have some self-directed curiosity. They should learn by following their curiosity. Um, they should have access to beautiful flowers and gardens and, you know, real live animals and trees yeah. where they're so happy. Um, so I'm passionate about this. I think that, that we've really removed nature from so many children's lives. Yeah. Um, and we know from the studies that when children do spend more time outside, they build more resilience mm-hmm. to stress. Um, they have more self-esteem and more self-confidence. They're more comfortable in social groups. They work better in teams. You know, these are life skills that they really are going to need forever. One of the studies that you mentioned has to do with recess. And it, it may be going back to the either the Finnish study. I can't, I can't remember exactly which one. But I was fascinated by that. Can you share the difference in how um, 
recess is handled in different parts of the world. Well, it's so devastating here how few kids really get adequate recess. And we know that there's an epidemic of inactivity among school children today. Um, and in fact, when a kid often acts out in school, um, that child is sometimes punished by not being able to go outside, yeah. which is exactly the opposite probably of what that kid really needs. Um, and, and I think one of the studies I saw uh, said that 21% of children on any given day in America are getting zero recess. There's a great disparity racially, too, among who has access to recess. So 36% of white kids, um, you know, may, or 36% of African American kids may not have recess compared to 15% of white children. Mm. Um, and you know, access to nature overall has become a social justice issue, one that we don't always think about. Mm. And one of the examples is that test scores are high, not just because teachers get paid higher abroad, but because they have more, they have like five or six recesses a day. Is that? <laughs> well, that's also Finland. So, so while we have been taking away recess in this country, uh, in Finland, uh, w w Finland always has the highest test scores in the world. Um, and, and some people think, oh, it's because the teachers get paid well or because the children are polite, you know, or they're valued in their community, whatever. But the if you ask the teachers, why do your children do so well? They'll say, well, it's because they get 15 minutes of recess for every 45 minutes of instruction. So they get five recesses a day. Mm -hmm. And the teachers will say, if they don't go outside, they can't sit still and they're not paying attention. Yeah. So, so it's such a no-brainer to them. I just think that's amazing. I mean, I feel like that's exactly, it seems like such kind of a no-brainer, like you just <laughs> said, you know. Kids need to run around. Yeah. And and you would be more, I mean, if you just take those 15 minutes, then you could even shorten class periods be because you get more done. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And, and the free play component, I know I look so fondly on my childhood and I, I think I was mentioning to you, they would just throw us all out of the house at, you know, 8 a.m. and say, well, we'll put food out for you at noon <laughs> and then off we'd go again until dinner time, you know, and, and I think that that, that kind of, um, unwatched exploration seems to be really, really important. Kids are getting so little of that now. Their lives are so overscheduled. When they are outside, they're often on sport teams where they are told which direction to run, what to do with the ball. There is an adult sort of hovering over them at all times. Um, yeah, that sense of just fending for yourself a little bit and yeah. learning some lessons and making your way in the world. These Again, these are skills that they're going to need. Um, we are actually preventing them from gaining those life skills. But as a parent, I mean, how do you how do you introduce that and and not be just the only one doing something wild and crazy? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And it's actually I think it's a valid concern that, you know, parents don't want their kid to be the only one roaming around alone in the woods, of course. Yeah. So um, what's happening in, in many parts of the country is that parents are getting together. Um, they're forming family nature groups. This is an activity that's been promoted by the journalist Richard Louvre. Um, there is, you know, an, a supervising adult sort of on the periphery if anyone needs help. But no one is telling the kid, this is what you do with this piece of equipment. 
or this is how you play with this stone and this twig. Yeah. Um, you know, it's letting children have some imagina- imagination and imaginatory play and some exploration. Um, there are also, um, you know, summer camps are a terrific way right. to expose kids to nature and activities. Um, there are more programs after school that are allowing kids sort of an option for free play. Yeah. Um, it's kind of ironic. Some of those cost money. <laughs> we used to do it for free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that you mentioned that I'd like to touch on a little more is the the socioeconomic component. Um, that that especially in urban situations, and and uh, we there's a disparity between what kind of nature and what kind of outdoor activities are available, uh, in particular to poorer communities. And what do we do about that? Or, or do you have a, a any advice? or thoughts or feelings or opinions about that part of it? Well, I certainly do have thoughts and opinions about it. <laughs> you know, after after writing and researching this book, I, I, I do believe that our exposure to nature, our access to nature is really fundamental mm-hmm. to who we are. It's fundamental to our humanity. Um, we need that connection to living things in order to be our best selves. Mm-hmm. And so everyone deserves access to that. Uh, we also know that in, in underprivileged neighborhoods, there is even more stress. So those kids need it more than anyone. Um, and so I believe it's not just up to the families to provide this because that's hard to do. It's hard to find access, but it's really up to the schools mm-hmm. um, to provide environmental education and outdoor time and recess. It's up to our towns and cities to create quality parks that are accessible. Um, right now, I think something like one in three Americans does not have access to a public park within a 10-minute walk. Mm-hmm. And so there are some nonprofits out there that are trying to change that. Um, it's become a real priority for public health. If anybody listening uh, wants to get involved or wants to find out more about kind of helping the cause to make that happen, do you have any suggestions of where they can look? Yeah, I mean, there are some some uh, resources I can direct people to. The Children and Nature Network is a wonderful resource just for compiling studies and kind of summarizing them. Um, there are groups like uh, the Trust for Public Land, mm-hmm. which is really doing a lot of work to build these parks mm-hmm. um, and to lobby mayors and you know sort of town planners um, to to provide more quality green space. Um, there are a number of conservation groups out there who believe in protecting public land so that we have these wilderness experiences available to us and accessible to us. You know, as humans, we need places of solitude too yeah. and places where we can get away from industrialization. Um, even, you know, our earliest parks planner, Frederick Law Olmsted in the 1850s understood that, that this was really important for public health. Yeah. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Uh, we have one more musical break and, um, I, I was going to play one song, but I think I'm going to decide to play another because I like the groove on this one. This song is called Um Tom and it's Catano Veloso. And yeah, check it out. See what you think. Thanks for listening to the Apex Hour. Um tom pra cantar, um tom pra falar, um tom pra viver Um tom para a cor, um tom para o som, um tom para o ser Ah, como é bom dormir Ah, como é bom despertar Thank you. 
pra gritar, um tom pra calar, um tom pra dizer Um tom para vós, um tom para mim, um tom pra você Welcome back to the Apex Hour. That song was called Um Tom, U-M, and then Tom, T-O-M. And the artist is Catano Veloso, C-A-E-T-A-N-O, and then Veloso, V-E-L-O-S-O. Um, just a really cool groove there to sort of send us off a little into our last segment. I'm here in the studio with Florence Williams, author of The Nature Fix, and um, we've been talking about all kinds of things about getting outside. But we're going to sort of switch gears a little bit and talk about writing and their writing process. Um, I always love to ask people, you know, what their process is like. Are you, do you tend to be somebody who writes, um, you know, eight hours a day for three months and then takes time off? Or do you, you know, what's your process like? Do you, are, do you rewrite a lot? Are you um, spur of the moment? How does the muse strike and all of that? <laughs> oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> I need more muse. Um, I tend to be a very project-based writer. Mm-hmm. So um, when I'm not working on a project, I'm sort of looking around for projects. Uh, when I am working on a project, there are different phases of it. So right. um, for me, as a nonfiction science writer, there's a large phase that's research. Uh, uh-huh. And then there's a large phase that's reporting where I go out in the field and I talk to experts and I talk to scientists. So, you know, during those phases, there really is not a lot of writing. When it comes down to actually synthesizing all that material and being surrounded by my mountains of notes and data and yeah. scientific articles, um, I personally find it very helpful to go to a place where I can have total concentration for long periods of time. So I love going on writer's retreats. I love, you know, borrowing friends' houses or or cabins where I won't be interrupted. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I have two kids. I have a dog. I have a cat. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes, um, those interruptions can, can be frustrating as a writer, especially when you're, when you're grappling with structure, uh, and trying to answer a lot of tough questions in your writing. So I'd love to just go away. And then I, I will try to pound out a chapter draft in like three or four days while I'm away. And then I'll revise it kind Mm -hmm. of when I'm back home. And the research component and the, and the traveling, I mean, it seems like that has been such a, a, an amazing and rewarding part, uh, perhaps for you. I mean, you you really sort of get into all these people's lives and their research and things like that. I mean, do you do you how do you collect all that? Do you just say, oh, this person's interested, this is this this, and then sort of fit them into where you're trying to go with your book, or do you just 
go and get everything and then start putting things together. I don't know if that made sense at all. <laughs> that sort of makes sense. I, I would say that to find the right characters who end up in my book and the right sources takes a lot of groundwork and yeah. a lot of preparation. You know, not every brilliant scientist is going to be brilliant on the page right. or very generous with their time or good at explaining the science. So it's this special alchemy and you have to really, you know, kiss a lot of frogs as it were, yeah. I think, to find to find your your prince charmings or your princess charmings um and and then uh you know i sort of go chapter by chapter so i'll i'll talk to the people i need to talk to read the articles i need to talk to and then synthesize that one chapter at a time so i'm not one of these writers who like you know goes and does a year's worth of research and then sits down for seven months or eight months Oh, that's a that's so cool to know about your process. <laughs> and and I love what you said. You you these people are characters they're in char- a way. Yeah, they're definitely characters. Yeah. I never really thought of it that way, and I love that. Well, that's you want to bring them to life yeah. on the page, and especially because I write science, and I want to make it fun, and I want to make it accessible and readable. Um, I want to humanize my scientists. I want to spend a lot of time with them. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know what they have nightmares about. I want to know, you know what they what they like to eat and what they wear. <laughs> yeah. And I don't necessarily use all that, but it helps make them complete people. I that's fantastic. That's really a, a wonderful way to to hear about that. Um well and then uh we have one last question. You've been so generous with your time and I know this will be hopefully the first of many visits to Southern Utah University. And so thank you so so much. But I have to ask you my last question that I love to ask all my guests, and it's kind sure. of the the fun one. And it's, you know, what's turning you on this week, which it doesn't have to be really Related to your research, it doesn't have to be related to anything. It's just kind of a fun question for audience to see, like to get turned on to something new. So, right. Florence Williams, what's well, turning you one on? One thing that's turning me on, Lynn, is hanging out with you and going on these beautiful walks. So, I want to just thank you for your incredible hospitality. Oh, thank you. I mean, the Apex program is amazing, and thank you. you've just been really terrific. And I, thanks for showing me some of these beautiful places. Where oh, like you're to go. so welcome. I can't wait till the next time. <laughs> I'm also I'm reading some great fiction right now. I'm, cool. I'm reading a book called Exit West. Um, oh. It's a novel okay. by um, Mohsin Hamid. Okay. Uh, he is a Pakistani writer. Do you mind spelling that for us? Yeah, the last name is H-A-M-I-D. Okay, and the book is called it's Exit called West. Exit West. I'm loving that. Uh, I also just listened to a wonderful new podcast by one of my favorite podcast personalities, Her name is Caitlin Prest. Oh, okay. P-R-E-S-T. She normally does a great podcast called The Heart. What's it about? Um, Well, The Heart, uh, she will really, uh, let's see, often there are pieces written by writers um, kind of about – uh, love and you know relationships or oh, matters of the wonderful. heart but she's got a new one out that's been uh it's been distributed and produced by cbc okay canadian public um radio and it is called the shadows oh the and shadows. It, it's a fictional podcast but it's i think it's quite autobiographical and i'm loving it and it's a lot about a young woman who's an artist and she is struggling with um how she's thinking about love and relationships 
Oh, I love it. So that one is called The Shadows. The and Shadows. tell me the, the woman's name again. Caitlin Prest. Okay. Check it out. Well, there you go. That's what's turning on Florence Williams this week. Well, on that note, we will say goodbye from the Apex Hour. And um, thanks so much for being here. And um, Florence, it has just been such a pleasure. We can't wait to read and hear about what you do next. The book we've been talking about today is called The Nature Fix. And then also be sure to check out the new podcast um, that's on Audible, which is called The Three Day Effect. So thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.